0: Kia ora, my name is Mark Easterbrook and you're listening to Going West Audio. For your enjoyment, education and inspiration, we've opened up our archives, queued up the tapes and unearthed the best oratory, discussion and performance from 25 years of the Going West Writers' Festival. In this episode, historian Michael King, author of many landmark New Zealand works, in conversation with Tainui Stevens about King's book being Pākehā now.
1: I find it about this stage of the event I stop saying ladies and gentlemen and say friends friends welcome to the last session of the day, but the session which I think could be the most one of the most moving and certainly one of the most important in so many ways. Both Michael and Tainui have been guests at Going West on occasions in the past. And after reading the revised edition of Being Pakeha now. I was, I was quite moved and I wanted to make a bit of a statement because this process of having people to introduce and cheer is so important these sessions and I wanted to acknowledge Michael's mana by having somebody like Tainui Stevens to introduce Michael King to you for tonight's session. Tēnā koe,
2: te Tēnā koutu, tēnā koutu, I'd also like to acknowledge, especially, allow me this indulgence, if you will, uh, a mihi to Mr Gordon Ogilvie, um, used to be my English teacher, whom I haven't seen for more than a couple of decades, and who convinced me to be as proud of being a member of the McLeod hapū of the McLeod tribe <laughs> as I am of my Māori side. Tēnā Gordon. It's just lovely to see you and to be able to call you Gordon. <laughs> it's a singular pleasure for me to be able to be here this evening, not only because of the Going West Festival, which I think is a fantastic kaupapa, but because of the man who sits on my left. Many years ago, uh, I viewed Tangata Whenua, the series, um, and was very touched by it and moved by it, and caused me to think at the time that there may be a vocation for me in that storytelling career. It would be presumptuous of me to say anything about the full extent of his corpus of work because I haven't read every word. But what I feel about Michael is simply that he is one who is proud to be called a Pākehā. And I think this is particularly important at this stage in our nation's growth. Interestingly, a very, very, very close relation of mine, a sibling actually, uh, is running for parliament or thinking about getting into politics, has political aspirations. He doesn't know it, but he's actually a liberal. He's um, running on the national ticket. And in a conversation we had about this only two weeks ago in Wellington, he, I found it very interesting that in the course of this quarter, Whilst he used the word Māori quite easily, he didn't use the word Pākehā, he kept referring to Europeans, which I thought was very, very interesting because it said to me, and we all know, that there are probably too many people still in this country who are afeared in some way of using the word Pākehā. I think that's a shame, I really do. The year 2000 will see our country go online in a very real way with the rest of the world. And if we are to deal with the rest of the world, it behoves us to be able to understand our whakapapa because we will be dealing very, very intimately with many more nations on probably a daily basis for technological reasons, for a whole heap of reasons. If we understand our own whakapapa, we are in a better position to understand the whakapapa of other peoples we will be dealing with. Even the events of APEC and the Indonesian East Timor crisis evidence this thought. Without further ado, I would like to say that I mihi Michael for being who he is, for his skill, for his craft, for his creativity, for his imagination, and for his aroha, and for his honesty. But most of all, perhaps, for encouraging Parker people to spell Parker with a capital P. E te wima, Michael King.
3: Thank you. Tainui for that warm introduction. I'm delighted, too, that you're here doing the honours. Just as Barry Barclay and I were delighted when two years ago or so Tāngata Whenua had a rerun, um, Tainui was the person who did the introductory and um, closing excerpts to go with those films to bring them up to date. And uh, I got as many comments about how well Tainui fulfilled that role as I did about... um, about the programs themselves. It was a strange experience because when Barry and I, as I say in this uh, book, when Barry and I made those films we were, it was an exercise in current affairs. When we sat down to watch them 25 years later for a rerun, current affairs had mysteriously become history. And it wasn't just the fact that so many people in it were dead, it was also all the other things. you know, The clothes were different, the cars were different. I had more hair and less grey ones, you know, it was, <laughs> the passage of time was very much um, apparent in it. But in, in a way I think those films did stand up to the test of time in that what most moved me about the whole exercise when we did it was that television and film had the potential to actually carry experience to people, to give people an opportunity to be in front of other people who they would not otherwise meet and hear words they would not otherwise hear. And, um, in that sense, it was a marvelous thing to have been involved in. It was also, as I say in this book, a door opener to me. There's a strange twist <laughs> uh, to my career, and I think, like, as Janet Frame always likes to do, one puts the word "career" in inverted commas, because um, you know career implies something that's strategized and planned and carefully worked out step by step. I had tried after I left journalism, newspaper journalism to become an author and I was trying to get uh, books commissioned because to take that jump of leaving full-time employment for not a very great deal of money to no employment and for no money, I felt I needed books to be commissioned and I needed an advance on royalties. Um, I didn't have any luck for about four years. Um, I approached a number of publishers with a number of projects, I approached the Literary Fund, well the, yes, the, literary fund, the <coughs> Arts Council which was then separate and separate other funding boards and I got nowhere. Strangely enough after, for another set of circumstances we had done those films, I then got letters from a couple of those publishers who said they're now interested. So in a way, although my career in television was exceedingly brief, it, it opened the doors for doing what I really wanted to do. Um, Right, I'm in an odd situation with this book. About 18 months ago, Penguin said to me they would like to bring the book Being Pākehā back into print, which was a book I wrote uh, in the early 80s and which went out of print about six years ago. Now, if you are an author and you're trying to live off the marketplace, the only way you can really have any hope of doing it is if some books stay in print, because most books are basically 12-month wonders. They come out, they get a blaze of publicity, the booksellers put them at the front of the shop, and then a year later, they're dead. And even if there are still some left over from the first print run, they're way down the back or they're still in the publisher's warehouse. So what one always hopes for is books that will go on speaking to people and have something to say and still be read. This one was in print for a while, um, I guess for about um, 10 years, and then it went out of print. And I said yes, yes, I was quite happy about that, but then I had a look at it, And in rereading the book, which I hadn't done from the time I wrote it, I got more and more dissatisfied with it. Uh, It was so badly written, (laughs) for a start, and I wasn't going to have that. Um, Largely because I wrote it um, in a period of convalescence when I was on my back, I suppose. It was also full of material that didn't seem to be relevant to the theme of the book, this question of identity. And I discovered that my thinking had changed or moved on uh, from the time I wrote the original book. And so I said to Penguin, well, okay, yes, I'd like it to be back in print, but I'm going to have to redo it, which meant about redoing half the book. Um, And that's what I did. And because of that, Penguin then said, well, it's not really that other book. We'll give it a new title, hence being Pākehā now, and hence the, um, the subtitle, Reflections and Recollections of a White Native, which was the subtitle I wanted to use in 1983, but Bert Hingley of Hodder and Stoughton, Thought it was too politically incorrect and would, you know, you you couldn't use the word native in that way, so it was quietly put aside and we used something more cumbersome. But I was pretty glad to be able to come back to this white native expression, partly because uh, it describes how I feel and partly because perhaps it does make people sit up and take a a second look. Um, The main reason, however, why I did the rewriting, as I say, was that, that things had moved on, and one illustration of this for me was that um, this year is the centennial year for Victoria University. And although it seemed a bad time for universities to be celebrating anything, um, particularly uh, my old alma mater, nonetheless these things are happening and you know, one gets involved in some of them. And one of the more enjoyable festivities that I attended was the um, Students' Association Centennial Dinner. And um, that was terrific because I'd been at, when I was at Victoria on the Students' Association Executive in 1965, we'd had a dinner then for the old association for the, as, a, as a, a, a jubilee. It wasn't a particular jubilee year. We just thought we should do something about it. And we organized it and were thrilled that we actually had one member from the first executive. Um, he had been vice president in 1899, for one year, and then he had gone off to the South African War. Um, And that was a story in itself. Um, He was a very elderly gentleman whose daughter brought him down from Palmerston North. He came to the dinner. He drank far more than was good for him, but naturally, you know, when you're that old you have certain privileges, and we kept filling his glass. I then took him back to his daughter's place at Kilburnie at about 2 o'clock in the morning. And when I rang about 10 o'clock the next morning to ask his daughter how he was, she said, I'm sorry to have to tell you that Dad has passed, passed away. <laughs> but she said he was smiling. <laughs> that made us feel a bit better. <laughs> but there were some lovely, other lovely people there, including um, David Smith, who was uh, Helen Such's grandfather, and, um, and Tom Seddon, old T-E-Y Seddon, who was King Dick's uh, son, who had first entered Parliament in 1906. And... Um, a great experience to meet him, although for the next year, because of that encounter, I became his chauffeur and taxi driver in a way that became sometimes a little bit difficult, particularly as my mother wasn't always prepared to let me have the car just because Tom said and wanted to ride somewhere, but anyway. When we had the Centennial dinner this year, needless to say, none of those people were present, but um, others were. The oldest people by this time were the survivors from the 1930s, and I sat in two tables with my own generation of um, student executive members, and of course we we reminisced. And one of the things that um, became very apparent to us was that the 1960s, the mid-1960s, were certainly gentler and more innocent times than the 1990s. Hugh Rennie and I organised what was probably the first Uh, anti-South African demonstration that students took part in. In 1965, the um, national president of South African students, Bruce Robertson, was put under house arrest. We wanted to draw attention to this and to the whole business of apartheid, so we mounted a a 24-hour vigil outside the South African consulate in Wadestown. We started at 6am one morning, and we were going to finish at 6am the following morning. I was on the first shift and the last shift, and the last shift was from midnight to 6am the following morning, and um, went back, having announced that we were going to do this and going on television saying we were going to do it, we were determined to be there. But um, it was very cold at about 12.30am at Wade's Town this particular morning. There were only three of us there on that shift, uh, myself, Hugh Rennie and his sister Catherine, and a police car, because of course, because this was a 24-hour vigil, the Wellington police had to have a car there the whole time in case we did something unexpected like firebomb the consulate. Well, we didn't, but about 1 o'clock... One of the constables wound down the window and said, aren't you jokers cold out there? We said, yes, we are. Well, come and get in the bag. We've got the heater on. (laughs) And we looked at one another and said, well, you know, we're here for a vigil. This is a serious business, and someone might come along and not see us. He said, that's all right. If anyone comes along, you can jump out again. (laughs) So we got in the police car, and we had a much more comfortable last five hours with the police heater. We shared their coffee. And at 6 o'clock, when it was all over, the constable said, where do you jokers want to be dropped off? So... (laughs) Probably wouldn't happen like that, quite like that now. No sign of that sort of cooperation during the APEC um, demonstration. But one of the other things we talked about was the kinds of issues that we were concerned about as an association, the issues that we took to NZUSA to move motions on. And they were things like um, sporting contacts with South Africa, which we were worried about and wanting to stop, French nuclear testing, diplomatic recognition of mainland China, that kind of thing. As we went through these things, we realised through our astonishment that in all that period, and I'm talking about three years of student activity in the mid-1960s, there wasn't one recollection of anything that involved Maori, Maori Maori-Pakeha relations, or cultural issues. Those were simply not on the agenda at that time. Um, And that's how things were. It was a quite dramatic illustration that you need from time to time about how times change. And of course it was because things were that way then that I wrote the first book, being Pākehā in the early 1980s, really, to explain why there had been that cultural gap in the time that I grew up, to describe my experience, which was a kind of road to Damascus one, of coming into contact with what used to be called Things Māori when I was a journalist working for the Waikato Times. and I believe then that this was an experience, this experience of being a Pākehā person and going from having no contact with Māori to having rather a lot of contact and shifting one's perspectives accordingly. I believed in the early 1980s that that was an experience that would eventually be shared by all New Zealanders and it was worthwhile writing about it and offering it to my fellow Pākehā as at one level a narrative, but as another, at another level as a narrative which might prepare others for sharing this kind of experience. And I have to say that at that time, when I wrote that first book, what I was most concerned about was explaining Māori to Pākehā and making sense of the Māori Renaissance for those who had not been prepared for it. That was what seemed to need to be done at that particular time, and that's what my interests and experience at that time seemed to equip me to do. However, when it came to rewriting the book last year, of course, one of the things I had to confront was that the climate had changed hugely. Uh, that phenomenon which has been called, among other things, mana Māori, has again waxed large. Māori are regaining lost cultural and economic ground, and Māori confidence and assertiveness is stronger now than it's ever been in New Zealand since the 1860s, and one of the consequences of it is that it is undermining the certainties and the securities of some Pākehā people. Some of those Pākehā people are now asking, who are we? Where do we come from? Where do we belong? Should we feel collectively guilty about the fact that Māori were colonised? What is our relationship to this land and to the tangata whenua culture? And in particular, are we foreigners or aliens in this country? Now, before I address some of those questions, um, let me just quickly deal with um, some definitions because it's something some people get very hung up about. Uh, things like Pākehā and culture. And people say to me, in all seriousness, but is there a culture in this country? Which is a very silly thing, I think, to ask, but, however, to deal with it. Um, Culture, in the sense which I'm using it now, and indeed always using it, refers to those, to give it its broadest definition, those social devices we develop to help us come to terms with the fact that we are alive, and that we are destined to die, because that is the origin of culture. Now these devices can be challenging and character building in the form of sport. They can be sheer distraction like entertainment. They can bring us into harmony with the natural world through gardening, camping, or tramping, or fishing. They can engage our spiritual faculties through membership of a religious body. They can have profound resonance in our consciousness and experience through the high arts of music, painting and literature, culture can, as T.S. Eliot said, set the inner self into the most vigorous vibration, or it can simply provide the warmth of human companionship at the RSA club on a cold evening. All those things I regard as culture. By parkia, that other part of the expression, I mean those things that relate to New Zealand, but which are not specifically Māori or Pacific Island in character. I refer, in other words, to mainstream New Zealand culture, which is not unaffected by things Māori, but which is not in itself Māori." Now, there can be some contention about that use of the term, but that's something we can return to perhaps in, in discussion. I prefer to use the word pakia because it is positive, as distinct from having to continually use that word non-Māori, which is not, which I find annoying. It's just as difficult being a proponent of that form of writing known as non-fiction, which I also find a bit strange to be defined in a negative way, and I sometimes get my revenge by referring to the other sort of writing as non-non-fiction, which the imaginative writers don't like. Anyway, Pākehā is a positive expression. It's not saying what something is not, it's saying what it is. It's an indigenous New Zealand expression, and I'd also have to say I favour it because the other alternative words, such as European or Caucasian, are no longer accurate or appropriate, and of course the word Caucasian never was. Pākehā is not a pejorative expression, let's get that straight. Contrary to um, the uh, belief of people such as the uh, National Party senior whip, John Carter it does not mean long pig it doesn't mean white flea it doesn't mean turnip nor does it mean bugger all of which have been cited apparently seriously as meanings for those who find it distasteful and as justification for not using it it almost certainly comes from the Maori word paki pāke, Pākehā which was a reference to the fair skin or the white skin of the first non-Maori who stepped ashore here. I've always taken it for granted that I belonged to this land. Although there was a flavour to my childhood that suggested that perhaps we could have been displaced Irish. That's something I go into here. I wasn't as a child aware of being um, Pākehā. Uh, Like Dan Davin, I thought I I was green and Irish and that we were the goodies and the rest of the world were not. But that receded as I grew up. My people, predominantly remnants of the Irish diaspora, came here to a country where the first indigenous people had made a treaty with the Crown that permitted colonisation and gave us these two streams of people with rights to be here. In Eddie Jury's construction, Tangata Whenua and Tangata, te riti, tangata Tiriti, Tangata Treaty being the people here by right of the Treaty of Waitangi. After several generations of occupation of this land, the ingredients of my sense of belonging to it include things like a relationship with the natural world. I go into this in some detail in the book. Our family experiences of tramping, camping, fishing, bush holidays. An enormously integral and valued part of my being a New Zealander and one of those ingredients I've missed very much on the occasions when I've been out of New Zealand. A relationship with history, Uh, again, I go into this here, Um, it's partly a result of the place I grew up in, Parramatta Harbour, just north of Wellington, which had been occupied for nearly a thousand years and had evidence of that occupation over that period. This gave me an intense interest in the people before, in all the things that had happened on the bit of land that I lived in, and that interest was cultivated by my father giving me books to read, which widened it. A relationship with literature, for me, is an integral part of it the importance of people like Frank Sargeson, Eric McCormick, Robin Hyde, Jim Baxter, Charles Brash, and so on, and a relationship with Maori, because that is part of the Pākehā equation. That is one element which people of European origin do not have in places other than New Zealand, and it affects my view of all the preceding factors, including my view of New Zealand history. There's an accumulation of other New Zealand attitudes which also accrue to this parkour identity, and I don't want to go into them in any detail. We've all got our own laundry list of what those things are. They include things like the rugby culture, and if you're a male over 50, as I am, you grew up and you went through the New Zealand schools where there was only one sport in winter, it was rugby, and if you didn't play it, you were a girl's blouse and various other um, pejorative um, expressions, and of course for my generation and for the earlier ones, rugby was a great common denominator, just as the Second World War was for my father's generation and the First World War for my grandfather's generation. And you know, a group of New Zealand men could always get together from opposite ends of the social spectrum I know they could still talk about you know, the NPC game the day before. Of course that's diminishing, but it was important in my lifetime. Other things are concern for the underdog, an unwillingness to be bullied or intimidated by class or status, not undertaking to do things without seeing them through. What Dan Davin, whom I quote in the book, referred to in an English context, talking about his New Zealand colleagues, as, quote, a power behind the scrum that one felt was sometimes lacking in one's more fastidious English colleagues. Very New Zealand thing to say, but in a kind of English manner. And, of course, it involved having New Zealand heroes and heroines, some of whom were Maori, but because I'm talking about Pākehā culture, I'll mention some of the Pākehā ones. From my childhood, Cliff Porter. Cliff, captain of the 1924 Invincibles, was a neighbour, lived down the road. I worshipped that man. He had a little batch out the back that was full of all his rugby memorabilia. Cups, his all-black jerseys, his caps with tassels on, photographs of the 1924 tour of the UK, Cliff presenting... um, assigned rugby ball to the Prince of Wales, all those things, and it was with Cliff I listened to all the broadcast matches of the 1956 Springbok tour, except for the three that were played in Wellington, the Wellington game, New Zealand University's game, and the test, which Cliff actually took me to. Cliff, to me, was a great New Zealander. J.T. Paul, the old veteran of the labour movement, his son lived two doors away from us, and the old man came and stayed there frequently through my childhood, and when I had polio and when I had a broken leg old J.T. Paul came and read to me and I greatly valued him and he also told me his stories about the labour movement which again left me in no doubt as to who were the goodies and who were the baddies Pat Lawler another neighbour of ours um, had a batch at Plymouthon came out every weekend from Wellington took the plate round in our church and Pat was another person who took an interest in me because he had had polio as a child, he still limped from it And he read books, and he knew about authors, and he talked about them. And I'd have to say to Dennis Glover, I don't want to talk about Dennis tonight because we're doing that tomorrow, but my father made the mistake of having known Dennis in the Navy, giving him a job in his advertising agency in the early 1950s, Carlton Cruthers The Shadow and King, making Dennis swear that he wouldn't drink at work, and being thoroughly let down by Dennis, who whenever my father went in to see how things were getting along, found Dennis with his feet on the table asleep, and usually with a half-eaten meat pie on the desk and a half-bottle of something. But Dennis was a very loud, noticeable presence in my childhood, and I thought he was marvellous, because as somebody said last night, um, it, was, it was Vincent. The people, in fact, you're really interested in when you're a child are the ones who your parents start to talk about in lowered voices <laughs> when well, they don't want you to hear. And My mother only told me years later when I... Came upon an argument that they were having when my father had just driven Dennis back to Paokoriki, and they wouldn't tell me what it was about. My mother eventually told me that she had turned Dennis out of the house because he was describing in great detail how he liked to get into the bath with Kura, his mistress, and um, scrub her back, and then what that usually led to. And that was not something my mother wanted to hear, and nor did she want the children to hear it. But you know, one became very interested in these sorts of things. And of course, there were later New Zealand Park heroes. They included people like Suzanne O'Bear, Ed Hillary, Robin Hyde, Ormond Wilson, Janet Frame, and so on and so on. Um, all of which, all of which, leads me to say that this country and its people and its history, its experience, its traditions, Māori and Pākehā, are in my bones. I have no other home, I have no other place where I want to live or could live with the same sense of belonging and the same sense of enrichment. Several events and sets of circumstances which are not peculiar to me have caused me to recognise this reality and to feel it deeply. One is, and this is something that's already been mentioned today too, The whole business of travelling overseas, eventually getting out of your own country, doing the big OE, which became possible to all of us once jet travel was a reality from the 1960s. Um, Unlike my grandparents, of course, who never went home because it took them three months to get here and they thought it would take three months to get back. We were able to do that and then to have that extraordinary experience of going back to the old country feeling a sense of affinity there, which I did, especially in Ireland. I love Ireland and I love the Irish, or at least those who live south of the border. But it was not home. There was an absence of New Zealand voices, an absence of New Zealand viewpoints, an absence of New Zealand sense of humour. And when I had my wonderful six months in Montaigne as a Catherine Mansfield Fellow in 1976, I greatly enjoyed that too. But I developed a uh, faculty that perhaps all New Zealanders have in those circumstances, after six months of only hearing French spoken and having to speak it myself, I was able to pick up a New Zealand accent from about half a mile away <laughs> through a crowd of 2,000 people on Bastille Day celebrations. I missed my New Zealanders, and it was a great joy to find New Zealanders in those circumstances and to sit down and just talk about the world and how things were going. Those are the sorts of experiences that you have to have to realise how deeply connected you are to your own country. There have been, um, I suppose, negative experiences that have also reinforced that. I've had some memorable encounters with some uh, colleagues who I was going to name but I've decided not to. (laughs) Uh, Along the lines of being tauiwi or foreigner in this country and having no right to be here or to write about it, those uh, exchanges have concentrated the mind and sometimes left me feeling a little angry, but they've not spoiled the experience of living here. And more recently, Doug Graham. Now, you know, Doug Graham is a man I admire very much because he's instituted a settlement and a reconciliation process through the political party that I would have thought was least likely to buy this whole scenario, and I give him huge credit for that, but occasionally Doug Graham has said things that have made me feel very, very cross. One was one night when he said the reason things were log-jammed in the Waitangi Tribunal system was because there wasn't enough money, and there wasn't enough money because the historians working for the tribunal were charging like wounded bulls. <laughs> well, I nearly fell off my chair. You know, I've been involved in two claims, and I've been well aware of the fact That in the case of one of them, the fee I was paid for my four weeks' work for the tribunal was the fee that the QC, also paid by the tribunal, was paid for one day's work. But Doug Graham, of course, is a lawyer, so I expect he would say that. But the one that got me riled in terms of identity was Doug uh, attempting to explain in a good hearted way the details of a Ngaitahu settlement and saying on network news. Well, Parkia people just have to understand that Māori have spiritual feelings for lakes and rivers and mountains, and that makes it special to them, and Parkia people don't have those feelings. Well, again, I was immensely irritated. I do have those feelings. I've had them since I was a child. They're still there. And in fact, in the absence of medieval cathedrals, of which there aren't a lot in New Zealand, I would say my most intense religious experiences are on mountains, with rivers, in the bush, beside lakes. I'm not taking anything away from Māori by saying that. I'm saying there are a very significant number of Pākehā people who also feel a similar attachment, which they would characterise as spiritual, to the land. And I don't think it's appropriate any longer to make these kinds of contrasting binary distinctions between Māori and Pākehā, saying Māori are this and Pākehā are that, because they're no longer true. There's been a lot of cross-fertilisation across the frontier to all of our benefit, and I don't like hearing those sort of distinctions made. My position now, and it's one of the main senses in which I've moved on from the earlier book, is to regard Pakeha culture as a second indigenous culture, not a transplanted culture. And I would say it is a culture that has become indigenous in the same way that East Polynesian culture became an indigenous Maori culture, by turning the attention of migrants away from their land and their culture of origin, and focusing their identity and their sense of commitment to this land. I go on to say in the book that as an indication that this has and is occurring, because of course it's a process that takes place over a long period of time, but as an indication that it is occurring, it's only right now to see the Macrocarpa and the wooden church being as much emblematic of the New Zealand landscape and human occupation of it as the Meeting House and the Cabbage Tree. In fact, I have to say, till I was about 12 years old, I thought the macrocarpa was an indigenous New Zealand tree anyway because there was so much of it. One of the pleasures about going back to the South Island last year on the Burns Fellowship was to find that in Otago and Southland, there are still as many old mature macrocarpas as there used to be in the North Island. They've largely, not largely, but to a certain extent, disappeared from the North Island landscape. Now, in saying these things, I have to stress... I have to stress because I've had some funny exchanges on Talkback Radio about this issue. I'm not taking anything away from Māori as the nation's first people, the nation's first culture, or as the people who are tuakana or senior in the sibling relationship. The people who, most importantly perhaps, signed with the Crown a treaty that is still recognised as having moral and judicial force. I acknowledge that and I'm pleased about it, and I'm proud, in fact, that my country and current governments of this country recognize that moral and judicial force. But having said that, nor will I allow anyone to demean or diminish the status of my culture and in the process of establishing or elevating that of Māori. I wholly reject the notion that Māori people or Māori culture are morally superior to Pākehā because of the European colonisation of New Zealand. The process of colonising is about the application of power by those who have it on those who don't, and it's almost inevitably corrupting, as Lord Acton reminded us when speaking of the absolute variety, and it brings with it, in this context of power and no power, notions of racial and cultural superiority. All of that, I'm aware, But I'm also aware, as I say in this book, in one of the chapters of this book, that we have, within our own culture, the experience of the Chatham Islands, and what happened in the Chatham Islands was that Maori colonised the Chatham Islands in the 1830s. Was it... I have to ask a superior form of colonisation than that imposed by European on Māori. Did it respect the dignity of the colonised? Did it respect, did it acknowledge the mana whenua of the indigenous people of the Chathams? Well, it didn't. It was, in effect, an exercise in ethnic cleansing, and there are others that can be cited. Now, the point in raising this um, is not to use it as a stick with which to beat Māori but simply to lay it on the table in the spirit of a historian who says, take care. The evidence of history shows us that no race or culture is automatically superior or inferior to another. We all, all of us, have skeletons in our ancestral closets that represent behavior of which we are not wholly proud by the standards of today's ethics and morality. And in making this point, I also have to say – well, I don't have to, but I'm going to (laughs) – I'm not in favour of a certain brand of political correctness which suppresses information about the behaviour of one side of the cultural equation while demanding open slather on the other. Now, some forms of political correctness I'm all in favour of, especially that kind of political correctness, which means we address each other politely and with respect. I was passing through New York about 18 months ago, and the New York Times highlighted a letter in the letters to the editor column in which somebody said, I'm fed up with this business of political correctness. I reserve the right to call my Jewish neighbours kikes, yids, or anything I want to call them. Well, if the imposition of political correctness stops that kind of discourse, of course I'm all in favour of it. But not the kind of political correctness that says we're allowed to look analytically and critically at these things but not at other things. And of course one of the things that does seem to come into this category um, is the um, representation of the Moriori experience in the um, National Museum Te Papa. And I was disappointed to hear Ken Gorby's comment on television in defending the fact that the Moriori exhibit didn't mention the Maori invasion, saying, quote, a revelation of the truth would constitute a return to history which has overtones of racism. Well, I'm not comfortable with that. I think there's a big picture here which is recognisable and perhaps needs to be described. History, in the sense of narratives about a country's past, moves inevitably in pendulum swings. In my time, in my professional lifetime, we've seen a faint Maori presence in the historical narratives. We've then seen a considerable Maori presence and an emphasis to redress the imbalance of the past. And I hope I'm one of the people that's contributed to that. We've then perhaps seen the creation of another kind of imbalance, which is what seems to me to be represented by Ken Gorby's comment. Um, namely that you don't bring the pendulum back to the middle but you continue to exercise special discretion for one part of the cultural equation. And I'm not in favor of that, just as I'm not in favor of the fact that um, when those two museum art gallery issues came up um, last year, namely the Dick Frizzell exhibition at the Waikato Art Museum and the Virgin and the Condom at Te Papa, that Te Papa stood up and said quite rightly, this is an exhibition, this is a work of art, you know, whatever you think about it, we're going to retain it. Waikato said the Dick Frizzell exhibition has upset Tainui, we're going to remove it. I don't think that's a solution that one should feel comfortable about. As a historian, I can't accept the suppression of information on any subject, nor the suggestion that some topics ought to be off limits. We must eventually deal with all our history in an open, fair-minded manner, just as we must, we must eventually come to terms with all of it, even those parts which cause pain. Truth, an open acknowledgement of things that occurred in our past is a necessary prelude to national healing. Selective amnesia has not and never will work. So let me steer this to, towards some kind of um, conclusion. What I'm saying about recognizing the indigenizing of Parkia culture, is also part of saying that there has to be a mutuality of respect between our two major cultures. No side can say, I insist that you respect my culture, but I retain the right to revile and demean yours. That is simply a recipe for unrelenting social disharmony and perhaps violence. A strong and a confident Pakia culture that is, one which knows its own history but feels positive about allegiance to its own origins, is more likely to deliver an equable and an equitable relationship with Māori. The people who rant and rave about Māori regaining lost ground, members of, for example, the One New Zealand Foundation, seem to me to be people whose own cultural position is insecure.' In saying what I have been saying about Pākehā culture and its right to belong and about its indigenous status, I seek to reflect a reality that is evolving and to accompany my Pākehā brothers and sisters towards a similar confidence and a similar security and identification with this land as that which Māori have. And I think I'll stop at that point, but I you know, welcome any questions, comments or discussions. Thank you. Any questions for Michael? Hi, all right. yeah. I started to say I endorse your central principle of evolving Manakitanga. But in relation to your comments on the Chatham Islands, I think it's important to point out that there wasn't a pan Maori movement involved in the invasion of the Chatham oh, Islands. Oh, sure, of course. And it's very least just to talk about a generic term, Maori. Certainly. Because Maori at the time identified themselves tribally, not as Maori. Yeah. And, and those were the actions of certain tribes, and the vast majority of Maori people uh, and their descendants would have no association with those actions. And yeah. so you can't attribute guilt on that basis. Yeah. Kia ora. no, I'm fully, fully aware of and appreciative of that point, Con. Um, one can even narrow it down from uh, looking at it in a tribal or an iwi context in that in the Chatham Island context, not everybody in Ngati Mutunga and Ngati Tama gave Moriori a hard time. In fact, it was Ngati Mutunga, Um, at at, uh, Waitangi in particular, Toenga Te Pōki and his sons, who uh, were particularly refined in their way of disposing of Moriori, and other Māori criticise it. Now, I, I take that point, but I raise it to make the point that just as you say what happened in the Chatham Islands was not something that Māori should be blamed for, I make the very same point about the negative impact of European colonisation in New Zealand. Similarly, it's not something that Parkia, as a group, should feel responsible um, about. I also have to say, I don't, when talking about the Chathams, I'm not, in fact, pointing a finger at blame. All I'm saying is, you know, we all have these things in our history because the world used to be a different place than the one it is now. There's the additional refinement in the Chathams of seeing, inevitably, the culture, the, the the contact and conflict happening the way it did as being inevitable because of the different tikanga of those two peoples. Where, in that situation, for a Māori group to acquire mana whenua over the land, they had to do it by ropatu, whereas for Moriori, their way of retaining and upholding them, their, their, their mana was not to fight. Now, that looks to me like an inevitable prescription for what eventually happened. I'm not talking about blame, uh, I just say that. We need to acknowledge all these things in our past, and having acknowledged them, we then need to move on and get on with the business of interacting fruitfully with each other in the present. Yes, over over the back.
4: I'd like to say that, in my opinion, one should always judge people by the standards of their times. And the um, people who came to New Zealand and to Australia in the 19th century, in many cases had been dispossessed in their own countries, and they would have felt no compunction whatever in dispossessing indigenous people in their new country, because this was the life they knew. And life was very much a dog-eat-dog society in those days. And there was no uh, social welfare to pick you up if you fell to the bottom of the heap. It was very much tougher. And I think that always has to be kept in context when thinking about New Zealand's past or any other country's past.
3: Yes, I fully accept that. And it's one of the tasks of a historian to evaluate things in the context of the times. But at the same time, I say that in the whole process of colonization of New Zealand, there were some things that happened inadvertently. There were some things that happened with good intentions, and there were some things that happened disastrously with the worst of intentions. And I think you need to make a distinction about each situation, each place, each person you're talking about. I mean, one of the reasons I have always revered Suzanne Aubert, Mother Mary Aubert, her foundress of the Sisters of the Home of, of Sisters of Compassion, was the fact that she arrived here in the early 1860s as a French person who saw Maori being victims of the colonial process in all kinds of ways, saw they weren't adequately being helped or catered for from the government side or the local government side, and she set out to do something about it, and she was heroic in what she did about it. Um, So that, for me, is one way of imposing um, context to be be aware of those kinds of things. Also, though, you would have to say, um, there was something at work at the time of um, Victorian colonisation Um, There was that, what seems now in retrospect pernicious ideology of Darwinism, not an ideology of Darwin himself, but of Darwin's followers, which graded the human species into a pyramid of ascending culture and civilization and virtue, which had in the minds of most Europeans, Europeans at the top, and probably Australian Aboriginals down the bottom, and that was something which led to... uh, not only unfortunate things happening in this country, but much more so in Australia. And even by the standards of the Victorians, some of those things were inexcusable. My own people were dispossessed Irish. Um, One of the many ironies in New Zealand history is the fact that the most avaricious period of government acquisition of Māori land, the activities of the Liberal government in the 1890s and early 1900s, was steered by Jock Mackenzie, Sir John Mackenzie, who was a victim of the Highland Clearances, who came out of, was driven out of Easter Ross because his own family, Crofters, had been pushed off the land. And there's a certain sadness, I think, in the fact that he came to New Zealand and he secured the position of himself and people like him by doing something very similar to Maori and and not seeing the irony of it. So. This is just a long-winded way of saying I agree in general what you say, but there are all kinds of textures within the tapestry that are worth looking at and perhaps evaluating individually. Yes, up the back.
0: How important do you see the, the process of the sort of creating the sort of critical bones, as it were, for an understanding of Maori culture? Uh, sorry, of Pakeha culture, and and what other sort of milestones do you sort of see going on in that capacity?
3: OK, well, I have to say that I'm very, very interested at the moment in exploring in more details the textures of our culture. I'm not turning away from my interest in uh, what's happening in the Māori world and with the Māori part of the historical equation, but I'm very conscious of the fact that um, in making this distinction that we have, in, in perhaps using the bicultural model, to understand New Zealand history, looking at the Māori stream and the Pākehā stream, um, and in acknowledging that that's been a very useful thing to do, particularly in setting up the whole business, say, of the, the treaty settlements, and acknowledging that there was a responsibility, that, that, that the two peoples had not advanced at the same level and that there were reasons for it. All that's been useful, but it's also obscured all sorts of things. It's obscured the huge diversity and richness of Māori tribal culture, which for most Parkia people has only become apparent in the last 10 years and has been a great surprise to them and is reflected indirectly in things like the difficulties with carving up the fisheries' assets. But it's also obscured the same uh, subtleties and textures in our Parkia culture, and that's something I'm very much interested in exploring. Um, in the case of Janet Frame, whose biography I'm writing at the moment, whose biography I've finished, but for revisions at the moment, one is very conscious of Janet, being a New Zealander of Scottish descent, and one is conscious of it in all sorts of ways. Um, Janet's mother was Christadelphian, and every Sunday they had to sit down and read the Bible, and Lottie Frame would tell them about the last days and the Day of Judgment and what was going to happen. Janet and her sisters had this very clear idea of what the last day would be like. It would be just like sports day at Waitaki Girls High. (laughs) There would be a brass band playing um, the Invercargill March, there would be a pipe band playing the Road to the Isles, uh, and everything that went with that. Um, when Janet came to change her name, <laughs> Janet Frame is the only, you know, a number of writers in the world have adopted a nom de plume to write under and then live privately under their own name. Janet is the only one, as far as I know, who's chosen to write under her own name and live under a nom de plume, <laughs> in the belief that nobody will know that Janet Cluther is Janet Frame. But that, that new name she chose, Cluther, why did she chose it? She partly chose it because of the Clutha River, but she also chose it because Clutha was the Gaelic name for the Clyde, and the Clyde Valley was where her Scottish grandparents had come from. And all the way through down its life, right through to this very moment and the things she does at the moment, I'm very conscious that she is someone who comes out of that Otago Scottish culture, and it makes her a very different kind of Pākehā person than if she had grown up in Wellington, Auckland, or North Auckland, or whatever. And if I have any... um, (laughs) unresolved goals or challenges left for the what's left of my working life, it would be to explore more of these kinds of things, so we are not just thinking in terms of New Zealand history as being two homogeneous units, when in fact it's very much
0: more than that. Yes? I I guess what I wanted to say was um, a little similar to that, which is that what's often missing from discussion around New Zealand's biculturalism is the sense of uh, each culture not being homogenous or monolithic, that culture is an incredibly complex, shifting dialectic all the time. And within Pākehā culture there, I often think of it as having a very strong uh, anti-aristocratic, democratic tradition. Um, But there's also obviously another tradition that's not like that, and there's always tensions going on there. But also that individuals are themselves not monocultural, that it, I've heard it said many times that Māori in New Zealand are used to being bicultural because they have to take on a lot of Pākehā culture just to survive in a country where the mainstream culture is Pākehā. Um, but I think it's more than that. I, I think of myself as at the very least tricultural, that I have this Pākehā identity. Um, I have my, my relationship with Māori culture, which is a huge, has a huge effect on me. But I also have this kind of global culture that I'm, I'm part of, or many global cultures that I'm part of, which include the heritage and tradition that was brought over here by my ancestors, and also the enormous interaction we have now with American culture <coughs> and European culture and Australian culture, um, whether it's turning on the television or reading books or, in my case, comics as well. Um, so I think that that's often not acknowledged and that's what makes it very complicated and it also, I think now, that Maori politics, which has been simmering along for all this time away from the view of Pākehā until now when it's, it's part of mainstream New Zealand politics now, suddenly Pākehā are, are realising, my God, this is complicated. You know, There are all these different groups in Maori politics and there are, there are, um, there are aristocrats and there are democrats and so on. And it's forcing us to realise that, the that there are also tensions and dialectics in our own culture and that when we feel uncomfortable about uh, the Toku Morgan underpants affair or something, what it's actu- what's surfacing are all these tensions around issues to do with arist- aristocracy and democracy and so on. But they might be different. The, the perspective on that might be different, whether it's coming from a tribal perspective or whether it's coming from a Pākehā perspective and so on. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that's a question. <laughs>
3: <laughs> um, well, yes, it, it, it raises all kinds of uh, interesting consideration. I suppose one of the things I have an ongoing interest in is um, not only defining the subtleties within the broad cultural streams, but also the ways in which we've interacted on each other. I mean, I've seen in my lifetime um, Pākehā culture change in various interesting ways because of the Māori presence and the growing Māori presence. One of them has been that whole new revival of interest in Pākehā people about their roots and about their origins, which I think is in part happening as a result of witnessing the Māori Renaissance and seeing Māori people secure um, about those things. Another is, you know, I increasingly now go to uh, meetings where 15 or 20 years ago the meeting would have been held according to approved um, meeting procedure. Motions would have been put um, the majority would have carried the motion, the minority would have lost. Things are now happening down at the local level, right down to our local residents' association. Things like meetings beginning with a prayer, um, not, in a, um, uh, not in a partisan or sectarian religious way, but just in a way of people acknowledging that they are together going to do something important and feeling some kind of coherence with one another. And also, taking issues now and trying to talk them through to some sort of consensus rather than having this win-lose kind of situation. All of those, I think, are ways in which the the Māori influence is impacting on Pākehā culture. It works the other way too. Um, And this is something that interests me as a historian. Um, One of the more interesting books I did was a biography of Fena Cooper, which I would have to say would have been much easier to do when the old lady was dead, but she was alive. So it was done as an authorised biography and that presented some difficulties. It also, of course, gave me the opportunity to to interrogate her. But one of the things that was most interesting about Finna was to see how, in the course of her lifetime, she became utterly out of sync with her own people. And when I say her own people, I mean Te Rarawa and the people around Pangaru and the northern Hokianga. Because Finna was someone who was born in the 19th century, and her role models for leadership and for rangatiratanga were people like her father and her uncles, People who still had that 19th century role, which was basically that the rangatira, while finding out and representing the views of his people, basically went out the front and led. Finna continued to do that until the day she died. She was never at home with this corporate concept of rangatiratanga, which is that the authority resides with the group and that the people who stand up to speak for it very much do so, endowed with that responsibility by the group. Fina was not comfortable with that because she had lived through a period where the concept had changed and she hadn't changed. I feel very sure that that concept of rangatira has changed because of the whole phenomenon of the Western parliamentary system to which Māori were also exposed. You know, there was a time at the, say at the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi, where the people who took part in the meaningful debate and made the decisions were those rangatira people. There were still at that time tutua people and slaves who did not have the right to participate in those things. That does not happen now because Maori culture, like Pākehā culture, has evolved over a period of time, and I like to think that that's one of the factors that's been influenced beneficially on the Maori side by what the Pākehā has brought to New Zealand. So you know there are many, many subtleties and nuances of our history which we have yet to address and yet to look at and yet to understand, and it's good to think that these things are now happening and will continue to happen. I'm a great believer, of course, of history being of value in terms of shedding understanding, not just on the past, but also on the present. And it grieves me very much that history is not a compulsory subject in our secondary schools, and that this wishy-washy thing called social studies is there instead with very little history. I mean, I think we would save ourselves an awful lot of pain, particularly the kind of pain that comes from cross-cultural misunderstanding, if history was a compulsory subject from Form 3 to Form 6. But it doesn't look like happening. Well look, can I just finish up by reading a little bit from the end of the book? Because that's what I was going to do but forgot about in my formal presentation. And that I'm a bit worried because I can't now remember why I wanted to do this. <laughs> Maybe it's to give an air of finality. This this is my conclusion to uh, being Parker now, in which I suppose in the last chapter I try and bring all the threads together. And this is the very end of it. So perhaps this is a, a kind of way of, of rounding off this topic. And I am a writer, not a talker. You know, I really trust much more the things I reflect about and write and then rewrite on the word processor than the things I say off the top of my head, which sometimes get me into terrible trouble. Okay, the last couple of pages. For myself, life is inescapably conditioned by the Irish Catholic childhood, by the love of words and music that that background bequeathed to me, as it is by the passion for history and for the life of the bush, the coast and the sea that grew out of my early years at Parramatta. These fundamental experiences provide the magnetic core which has attracted and held the iron filings of additional influences – my formal education, my interaction with other New Zealanders, my encounter with Māori, travel abroad – which combine to make up my character and my own brand of the New Zealand Pākehā identity. For me then, to be Pākehā on the cusp of the 21st century is not to be European, it's not to be an alien or a stranger in my own country, it is to be a non-Māori New Zealander who is aware of and proud of my antecedents but who identifies as intimately with this land as intensively and as strongly as anybody Māori. It is to be, as I have already argued, another kind of Indigenous New Zealander. Like George Bernard Shaw, and indeed like almost anyone with a knowledge of the past behavior of our species, I feel that the history of humankind is shameful, but there are grounds for hope in bits of it. Pessimism of the intellect jostles with optimism of the will, and a large part of that optimism springs from the continuing discovery of old truths. The most profound satisfactions are to be found in living a life in accord with the natural world, Exercising the human capacity for friendship and altruism, engaging in creative and purposeful activity, and experiencing an allegiance to one's origins. This is neither a novel discovery nor a mantra from a new age philosophy. It simply articulates what every wise person learnt and taught from a time of Lao Tzu through Buddha, Jesus Christ, Francis of Assisi, and Ralph Waldo Emerson. But it is insufficient to hear such a message. One has to experience it to know that such things are so. And I have been blessed in that respect. All the features that once excited me about a particular corner of my country as I gaze through the dusty windows of a Woolsey 444 40 years ago excite me still. Now I see them through other windows. In the mornings when we wake... We look in one direction and see a rewarewa Rewa tree, French Sargeson's potent symbol of New Zealand identity, backdropped by a curtain of ferns. From the other window, we look out on a volcanic escarpment that was once surmounted by a fortified power. The summit is crowned with pines from an old state forest planting, the slopes clothed in Nikau, Pūruri and Pahutakawa. In the foreground stands a grove of gigantic poplar, a relic of the time when the land between us and the sea was farmed. If we watch long enough, we see wood pigeons swoop and loop in their spectacular territorial displays. When the windows are open, it is to the morning song of Tui and Bellbirds. It would be possible from the evidence within sight and sound of these two windows to deduce much of the surrounding land's natural and human history. The geological features are visible and the the regenerating flora and fauna. That same view is witness to nature's capacity to recover from past abuse For this is also a landscape that has been logged, burnt over, and mined. In just over 100 years, it has reassembled its elements and reasserted its healing powers. Even a kiwi has returned, and we hear its shrill cry as it feeds in the bush around the house at night. It is in this healing process that I apprehend what I would now call God. Not the image of our childhood, the old man with a long beard in the sky, who intervened in human affairs when necessary to unleash floods, deliver tablets of stone, or deposit his son. That was a metaphor that sought to make sense of the complexities of the human psyche, an image made in our own likeness. The God that I discern now is infused in the host of good and honest men and women who make up the underlying fabric that holds communities like ours together and in the regenerative power of the natural world. In the rise of mist from the estuary and the fall of rain, in the movements of the incoming and outgoing tides, I see a reflection of the deepest mystery and the most sustaining pattern in all of life, that of arrival and departure, of death and regeneration. And in seeing them, I feel satisfaction. I'm thankful that this piece of earth exists, and we upon it to see and to experience these things and thanks to the miracle of human consciousness to know that we experience them. Thank you. Thank
2: you. Kia ora, Michael, thank you, th- thank you so very much for those words. Um, it's for me, it's an absolute delight to hear considered opinion. Um, I enjoyed what you say particularly about uh, the relationship between Māori and Pākehā. I think for me the paradigm of partnership that I'm most fond of is the tuakana taina elder younger sibling. So I look at you and think, well if you're my younger sibling you must be my little brother. But I know you've got more grey hair and a magnificent CV so you are still my tuakana. Uh, tēnā koe. It was said once by Johnson I think that words are the vehicle of, are, are the clothes of thought. Uh, and if that's so, and, and I 'm sure it is, then stories of the vehicle vehicles of meaning. All of us here in this room are interested in stories. You are a man who, have, who has conveyed to this country the import and the beauty of our own stories. Um, and I think one of the things that comes through these stories is Maori and Parker, how similar we actually are in many ways, even early outside. Um, Michael and I think Con and a couple of other people were talking and saying things that I hear on the marae when expressing pride about someone that's a these guys said oh that's my relation or they didn't like someone oh that's not my relation. We are similar more similar in more ways than we than we possibly know. Uh, Michael from this group of people um, I guess we are all your relations and on their behalf on our behalf I'd like to express our pride in you for what you've done, for being you, for being Pākehā, because I think, as you've alluded to, uh, when a people are proud, they have every reason to uh, uh, be proud of their neighbour, to be proud of their partner. And your assistance for Pākehā to be proud is of inestimable inestimable value and worth, and sheer enjoyment. Because stories are fun, stories are serious, stories are all sorts of things. And you are one of many storytellers of our nation who have helped us understand these things. So, on behalf of this this group, ma uh, mo Thank you very much. This call, this is the end of this day's session of going west. Uh, so, on behalf of uh, the team, kia
1: koutou katoa.
0: This has been an archival recording from the Going West Writers' Festival. Thanks for listening.